0: again everybody and welcome back to the show. You are listening to season two and again I cannot believe it we're already at episode 10 and this is the history of religions and their gods and I am your host I am the skeptical ghost heathen and I am an ancient history enthusiast as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and their origins and so today is April 27th we are 2021 and this episode is entitled Did Jesus say that? (laughs) So anyway, in this episode, we're gonna continue on down that road. We're gonna examine those works of the earliest Christians or those, remember, those Messianic Jews that were consisting of the works of Paul, the Pauline letters and the epistles that we see in the letters of John and Peter and James to see what they say about their Jesus in a historical sense versus a celestial realm, as most accepted during this this particular era. So these are the earliest surviving gospels that we have that help us paint a clear picture of what the first Christians may have believed in and what they perhaps even understood before we get to the historicizing sect some three, three and a half, four decades later after the fact. So we also have to look at scripture to see what verses that there are in there that Paul perhaps used for dialogue for his Jesus. And perhaps what did he say and what did he do? And perhaps he may have borrowed, or maybe he didn't, some of these ideas for source material. Or maybe he didn't. But either way, thank you for listening. And please share with a friend if you think that they might enjoy the show as well. And please help spread the love. And if you give me an hour, Man, baby, I'm going to give you the history of the world and so much more. So, if you're ready for this excellent adventure, hop in or tune in and let's go. we left off in episode 9, we were still going through the epistles, and we're trying to find out exactly what we have learned about this Jesus, if he was a celestial being or if he was a historical being. And we're going through the book of Hebrews, which we all feel is probably the most telling and probably the earliest gospel that we have at hand. So right now, we're going through all 13 chapters and picking them apart and taking a look at what they may have been trying to convey to their readers at the particular time. So the notion that Jesus had to become like his brothers in all respects, you see this in Hebrews 2, verses 17, is sometimes actually presented as evidence as a historical Jesus. But... This does not follow, nor is it even plausible. So this phrase is actually very strangely worded if you look at it for a regular man, but, you know, who was born to human parents and grew up and toured the country as a man, and as a celibate preacher, as well as a miracle worker, don't forget. You do not normally describe this as a supernatural pre-existent being who is becoming like a human. And in all respects, um, translate the phrase in Greek, kata panta, which is according to everything. In other words, everything that matters to being someone's brother. A fact only known from Scripture, actually. So, to make Scripture true, Jesus had to sufficiently, in quotation, like us in all respects that would establish us as his brothers. So, therefore... He must, and here's the word that's used in Greek, ophelio, O-P-H-E-I-L-O, which put on a body of flesh so he could be tempted and suffer and die like us. Remember, we're talking about Jesus actually dropping down from the higher realms of heaven, where he's closer to God, down to the realms where Satan would exist, but not all the way down onto earth. Remember, where the more proper, the, the, the best altar, and the true and the best temple, right? We talked about that. Not the duplicates that are handmade down on earth. Here, Jesus is not being born, as one of us you know, might simply put it, but becoming sufficiently like us is the word that is being used here. And it appears that we know this happens only because it is theologically required by Scripture as well as logic. A cosmic supernatural event of donning a human body fits this way of speaking well enough. And it's arguably even better. Now, likewise, this explains why they imagine that their calling to join this new religion came from heaven and not from a earthly ministry as is The examples in Hebrews chapter three, verse one. Then after that, we get again, more quotations that are coming directly from scripture of the Old Testament. And still we have not received a single quotation from a historical Jesus. Just regurgitated verses from the Old Testament. Now source material, that's okay. So likewise, all the remaining chapters in Hebrews, instead we see this author argue that every high priest Taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in order to offer continual sacrifices for sin. That's in um, five one, including his own, which is in 5.2-3, all of which would entail Jesus did not come from among men. This is clear to us. And they're the ones that wrote this, not me. As this author has already said, he came from God's celestial host. And just as these human high priests do not take the honor of being a high priest for themselves, but to wait to be called by God, as seen in four, So also Jesus did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but waited to be called on by God. Chapter 5, verses 5-6, which evidently we know only because Scripture says so to us. It's right there in the Old Testament. Jesus himself, once again, is not quoted on this, but instead we get scripturally constructed myths of God's speech that Jesus' incarnation, as recounted in Hebrews 1. The fact that Jesus is being regarded here not as human high priest, but only as an analogous to one, suggests further that Jesus did not live among men. Instead, this is what we get in Hebrews Chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. And I begin the quote. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications to him, who was able to save him from death, with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and was perfected. End quote. So this verse is often taken as evidence of the knowledge of the story of Gethsemane, which is found in Mark 14, 32-42, where basically Jesus prays and he cries and he begs God to release him from the planned sacrifice. However, here in this story, Jesus is praying for his resurrection, not to be excused. Because here we are told his prayer is actually answered, unlike the gospel account of Gethsemane, where Jesus' request that he be excused is actually denied. So this is most likely another scripturally derived inference about what happened to Jesus in outer space when Satan and his, de- and his demons abused him and then killed him, as seen in the ascension, or a revelation of such an event, like Paul's vision of Je- Jesus inaugurating the Eucharist. Either way, this is no more likely on historicity than it is on mythicism. All the possible details that it could have secured this as an earthly event witnessed in human history rather than a cosmic event learned mythically are absolutely absent here. It therefore argues for neither hypothesis except insofar as it is weird to get nothing here more specifically than terrestrial, which argues for myth. I mean, after all, Though the author of Hebrews says he's got a lot to say about Jesus, as in chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, not one of those things places Jesus in an earth history. None are stories about his ministry, or about the occasions of his deeds and sayings, or why any of these lofty theological conclusions were reached about an ordinary executed convict. But what we do get is this author feels free to discuss what he believes are historical details of the Melchizedek, the king of Salem and the high priest of El Elion, who was mentioned in the 14th chapter of Genesis. He brings out bread and wine, and blesses Abraham and El Elion. That is who he is comparing Jesus to in Hebrews 7, making it all the stranger that he never once does the same for Jesus. Instead, this author believes the Melchizedek had no father, no mother, no agency, and was never born and never died, but was made, with quotations, just like the Son of God, mentioned in chapter 7, verse 3. Here using the word aphomio, a-p-h-o-m-o-i-o-o, the Greek word, an emphatic form of the word homio, the same word we saw used to Jesus say he had been made like men in Hebrews 2:17 so they both had no father no mother no ancestry in the usual sense i guess anyway this again sounds like a description of a cosmic jesus not one of an earthly one when he makes that comparison to the melchizedek that's odd so what this gives us is in christianity according to the epistles of the hebrews Jesus Christ is identified as the high priest forever in order of the Melchizedek. And so Jesus assumes the role of the high priest once and for all, right? And it's, there, it is speculated that the story of the Melchizedek is an informal insertion, and probably inserted in order to give validity to the priesthood and the ties connected to the second temple cult. It has also been conjectured that the suffix zedek, which is Z-E-D-E-K, may have been or become a reference to a Canaanite deity worshipped in pre-Israelite Jerusalem. So at this point, we hear that Jesus became a high priest, right? And in the manner of supernatural Melchizedek, and not in the manner of the original human high priest, as seen with Aaron in Hebrews seven verse 11, because it was necessary that the priests would be transferred from the one to the other, as seen in 7.12. And this again, guys, all learned from Scripture in 7.17. But here we get a piece of information that some cite as evidence of historicity. And this transfer shall entail the demotion of the priestly tribe of Levi, for the one about whom these things are said to belong to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. As soon in seven thirteen, because it was made clear before that the Lord has arisen from Judah, in seven fourteen, which fact is abundantly clear when we acknowledge that another priest is raised up after the likeness of Melchizedek, who was not born according to the law of carnal commandments, but according to the power of an eternal life. We see this in seven fifteen through sixteen, as Scripture says Jesus was. In 7.17, Jesus was thus not actually born. And we know he was spawned from the blood of Judah only because the scripture and logic say that he must have been, according to these authors. Now, here it is sometimes claimed that the author is saying Jesus had parents from the tribe of Judah, and therefore he must have been a historical man. But what this author is actually telling us is that it was foretold The verb was used, um, probelos, P-R-O-B-E-L-O-S. That the Christ would be of the tribe of Judah, being of the sperm of David, as it is put in Romans. And the change of order theologically requires a transfer to the priesthood from one tribe to the other. And the scripture said that such a transfer had occurred. The author, therefore, is not working from any historical information, or data, or anything alone, but from Scripture. That's it. Scripture is source material to to write the story. This is, therefore, just another reference to the Christ being formed of the sperm of David as Scripture had required. He is thus explaining how a Davidic Messiah can be a celestial high priest. Whether this entails historicity or not, therefore, it depends on whether such a belief that a celestial Christ doned a body of you know a body formed of the sperm of David is any less probable on minimal mythicism than a celestial being. But in contrast to obscurely ambiguous and indirect remarks like this, when we expect more concrete references to Jesus' life story and eyewitness testament to it, we get none just as we get no quotations from Jesus, ever at all, except as derived from Scripture. So, for example, in Hebrews 11, is an extended discussion of how we need to have faith, that Jesus will give us eternal life, as seen in 1039, without evidence, just as others have had faith in God's promise, without evidence. And numerous examples are summarized from the Old Testament. Curiously absent here are any examples of faith from the life of Jesus, from him himself, or from any of his disciples, or the women who purportedly followed him even to the very end, or any of the many people of the gospel claims Jesus had praised for their great faith when he healed them, or healed their loved ones for that matter. So how could this be? Why is the only evidence to be found only found in ancient scriptures. This is especially peculiar, given that when the author of Hebrews concludes by saying, Therefore, having so great a crowd of witnesses lying around us, let us put aside every burden and trust it will all work out. That's in 12.1. He means the examples he just surveyed, none of which are testimonies to the life, teachings, or deeds of Jesus, or anyone he encountered. Instead, by witnesses, this author means the long-dead people whose stories were told in the scriptures from where he's getting his stories from. This is very odd. Unless there were no witnesses at all to the life of Jesus who could reassure them that their trust in Jesus is well-placed. They simply had to trust scripture from the Old Testament and the Old Prophets. So here we at least do see Christians exhorted to endure the unbelief of those around them, just as Jesus did. Since he also had to endure from sinners such gainsaying against him, seen in Hebrews 12.3. But this appears to refer to the present and not the past, as he always has been the case. This has always been the case. Sinners are still abusing Jesus with their current doubts in the new congregations, and he bears it well, and so should we, the ones in the congregations, unless it's veiled references to the abuse that Jesus endured from his own killers, which in mythicism, who would that be? Or in the celestial realm? That would be Satan and his demons, who did not know who he was at the time. Had this verse said anything like, he endured so much abuse from the Roman soldiers, or so much hatred from the Jewish mob and the Jewish elite, or the or, or the Sadducees, when we would have evidence for historicity, then we would have it. But alas, we get nothing like that at all here. In a similar fashion, when we're told Jesus thought little of the shame of enduring the cross, as seen in 12.2, we again aren't hearing anything not already expected on mythicism from what we've already learned from scripture. So that is inconclusive, but we still have the very strange absence of the evidence and the witnesses cited in Hebrews 11, as previously noted before. Now, unfortunately, the same peculiarity plagues Hebrews 12 as well, where an elaborate example is derived from those Jews who were not persuaded by the many signs that Moses did among them. Back in the Old Testament, remember? So we should expect now to hear about the many signs that Jesus did among the Christians. Instead, we get just the opposite. If they did not escape when they rejected the one who warned them on earth, even less shall we escape who turn away from the one who warned from heaven. As seen in Hebrews twelve twenty-five. Basically meaning in both cases, God the Father, whose voice shook the earth in those days, but now in scripture promises to shake the earth in the future. In 12 verses 26 to 28. Now the implication is that Moses lived, taught, and gave signs among them on earth. And God's voice was actually heard on earth then. To the point of even shaking it. But the Jews did not listen. And what happened? They were killed. Whereas Jesus did not live teach, or give signs among them on earth, and all we get is God's voice in Scripture. In other words, there was evidently nothing Jesus did that was equivalent to shaking the earth or transmitting God's voice. Not even anything analogous to Moses. Now, what's interesting here is the word on which the parallel turns here is, in Greek, krematio, Okay, and I'm going to spell it so you guys can look it up on your own, but it's C-H-R-E-M-A-T-I-Z-O, which actually means more than to warn. In fact, it means regularly transacting business, having dealings with someone. In other words, giving speeches and performing deeds and negotiating contracts. It thus encompasses the whole public biography of Moses. This passage therefore implies Jesus didn't have one of those. In fact, none at all which to build a stronger analogy with moses we just get to trust the scripture instead they had moses and god's voice we only have god's voice now communicated from heaven jesus is very conspicuously missing from the history at this point it's odd in all of these features found in the text of hebrews that we have surveyed so far in this podcast are not impossible in historicity even as a whole, but they are less probable as what we're getting down to. So this get the idea right that we're not coming to the full conclusion that there is no historicity here, but it's doubtful, okay? That's where we're going so far. So if Hebrews was written by someone who knew only of a cosmically suffering and dying Christ, then its content is essentially exactly what we should expect from what we are reading in the context. Yet it is certainly not exactly what we would, should expect on historicity, right? Because of all the implications of celestial and terrestrial beings. In fact, especially as a whole, it's very much unexpected. Some passages can be interpreted as veiled references to either a historical or even a cosmic Jesus. Although even those are Oddly ambiguous if a historical Jesus were meant, but not a cosmic one was meant. And thus, even those passages are somewhat expected, especially when we notice how consistently they are in this case. Meanwhile, several passages are downright bizarre on the assumption of historicity, yet readily expected on myth when read in the context that were given. So yes, it is actually still possible that these are all just veiled references to a historical Jesus and his historical events. But it's less probable. It's more likely that they are an an overt reference to a cosmic Jesus known only through scripture and revelation, as we have seen demonstrated over and over and over again, with small little innuendos to these little veiled earthly remarks that we have to question and try to understand what this writer was trying to do. And I think we kind of analyzed that and got a pretty good idea. And that is a fact we must enter into our equation as we're going through through this podcast, right? The peculiar absence of any clear reference to any facts about a historical Jesus, any quotations of him, any stories about him that could be definitely placed on earth, they're non-existent. Not for another three and a half decades. Throughout all 13 chapters of this extended letter or homily about Jesus, again, is simply bizarre. Yes, it is. Still possible that the author just never felt the need to relate any such information. Not even once. Not even where it's expected. And would even greatly improve his argument. But he doesn't. So this is still very improbable in terms of historicity and weighing more on the side of mythicism and a celestial being, the extraterrestrial. And that's the essential point that we cannot just simply sweep under the rug and ignore. Hebrews is simply strange, unless Jesus never existed at all. So we saw the same was true of other Gospels as well such as in Paul's letters and in the pseudo-Pauline letter to the Colossians, which was an outright blatant forgery. But putting all this together, we cannot believe the probability of all these Gospels would look anything more than a 30% to historicity on the scale, and with 70% on mythicism with a celestial Christ, which would far more likely produce texts like this, among those that would survive the filter of later Christian document selection. We might expect more explicitly mythicistic texts to have been produced and survived, but we have no reason to believe they would have been preserved. So accounting for that, these gospels are exactly what we should expect to survive for us to see them now, if the celestial Christ story mythicism were true. So let's just talk about those occasions when the sayings of Jesus actually appear in the epistles. In fact, it's often claimed that Paul attests to a historical Jesus because he quotes or cites some sayings from Jesus. Though, never quote anything that we find in the four canonized Gospels. This is interesting because it's proven that there was no accurate or controlled tradition even then. And there could have not have been anything for the Gospels later to draw upon. But this is evidence. This evidence is often gimmed up and even abused. And Gindip are the occasions where Paul says something that sounds like something that Jesus may have said that would be gospel, even though Paul shows no awareness at all that he is quoting or even paraphrasing Jesus. These, in fact, are just the words of Paul and Paul only. They were later redacted and possibly attributed to Jesus, as we know that this was constantly done, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, but as already discussed, no other account makes any human sense at all and in any case the converse cannot be proved the converse cannot be proved this means that such passages cannot be used as evidence for a historical jesus abused are occasions where paul says he has a commandment from the lord to apply to a particular situation which he carefully distinguishes from his own opinions thus demonstrating considerable reverence for making clear when he is speaking for the Lord and when he is speaking for himself, further refuting the notion that he would ever quote or paraphrase the Lord without attribution. So, to cite such passages as evidence of historicity is to abuse the evidence beyond what is capable of even proving. After all, we already know that Paul routinely only received messages from jesus by what by revelation or hallucination or dreams he therefore did not need a historical jesus to learn commandments from so because this adequately explains all such evidence is supported by the fact that never once does paul place any such saying in a historical context right nor does he ever say who told it to him for example, he never says anything like, "Oh, well, Peter told me that Jesus said this," or you know, James said that that you know Jesus went down there and he did these miracles or anything like that. The only source he ever cites is from the Lord himself, which means revelation and not tradition. In fact, Paul tells us multiple times that he learned nothing about Jesus through a tradition, but indeed. Paul never refers to any tradition coming to him from any other source but revelation and the scriptures. He never even uses the word disciple and never says anyone handed him anything down to him. But to the contrary, again, the words he uses, received and transmitted doctrine, are the same exact words he uses for direct revelation. So even the traditions he mentions in 1 Corinthians eleven two. 2, And I quote, hold to the traditions just as I delivered them to you may simply be the revelations he passed on to his congregations, which passing on did not mean them apostles as it was human transmission, not revelation. For as we saw earlier in Galatians 1 verses 11 to 24, he felt compelled to repeatedly and emphatically deny relying on any oral tradition whatsoever. Because evidently his congregations would not trust him unless he was teaching what was directly revealed to him, not as being a third-party apostle, right? This was key. He couldn't get trust from his congregations if he was second to third party. They wanted to hear it from the one person, if not the Jesus himself. So consequently, Paul never refers to Jesus having had a ministry before he died or having provided any body of teachings to those who, you know, sat before him or anything of that kind. And Paul's congregations evidently hadn't heard of any such things either. It's unknown to them. As an example, Paul essentially says Jesus never taught on earth, as seen in Romans 10 verses 14 through 17, he says no Jews ever heard him teach and that the only way anyone could have ever heard the words of Jesus is through an apostle like himself. As Paul says, they're of the Jews among everyone else. And here's in a quotation that I will give you from Romans here. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? and how shall they believe in him who they have not heard and how shall they hear without a preacher and how shall they preach except a preacher to be sent End quote. so when referring to the apostles those sent it is only their words whom the jews heard as in romans 10:18 basically paul is assuming here that it is only through the apostles anything jesus ever said or did can be learned only through apostles and through their visions. So the Jews have not heard. They have not heard him because no preacher was sent to tell them about him. And therefore the apostles were needed to do so and sent for that purpose. They are the ones that the Jews heard, but nevertheless, they chose to resist, as seen in Romans ten sixteen. But that means that Jesus had no ministry among the Jews because they had not heard him and could not have but only from the apostles preaching. In fact, this is even clearer than the parallel passage found in 1 Clement 42 where it seems that the only apostles received any communication from the Lord and thus only they could relay what they had heard to the public. Now, likewise, in Romans 16, 25 to 26, the teachings of Jesus Christ is only known through revelation and through scripture and not any historical ministry. So we get a peek at this process in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul basically says God sent him a scourge to keep me from becoming conceited uh, because of the greatness of the revelations he frequently received. And he begged Jesus to remove it Three times even, please, Lord. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul is having, or at least claiming, entire hallucinatory conversations with Jesus, which generated actual sayings for Jesus. For we see one such saying generated here, and this certainly is not a historical Jesus saying these particular sayings. And we'll get to it at some point during this um, particular podcast. But there are even more ridiculous versions of this kind of thing that can be found even in the book of Revelation, where we find the dead Jesus actually dictating entire letters from heaven. Seen in in Revelation um, verses 1 through 3. So Jesus was still teaching and delivering sayings almost half a century even after Paul was dead. This is almost certainly a fabrication. But it passes itself off as authentic supported by the church and pushed on through. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 19, verse 10, which means that this was the sort of pathway to knowing the sayings of Jesus that Christians understood and even respected. Yet no historical Jesus was even needed to generate sayings like this. Rather, one could just pretend to have heard Jesus in revelations or actually thinking one had. Sayings from Jesus could likewise come from Scripture, as we saw in the book of Hebrews, as well as 1 Clement, where they quote Jesus, and yet, in fact, are just quoting from Scripture. Paul almost implies as much as himself in Romans 15, verses 2-4, or from any author's expedient imagination, as most likely in Revelation, and certainly many times in the Gospels themselves, or by simply adapting what someone else said into something Jesus said. That adaptation. And we're going to see this a lot over and over and over again. Which could include things adapted from even lost scriptures or Jewish or even pagan passages. And that is exactly what happened here. And it's evidenced by the fact that even some of the most famous teachings of Jesus appear to not have come from him at all. In fact, his famous teachings on paying taxes. Remember, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, as proclaimed in Mark Chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, that we already analyzed through the words of the Jews, if you recall. But it's completely unknown to Paul when he exhorts his fellow Christians, including Jewish Christians, in Rome to pay taxes, as seen in Romans 136 7 And this is generally believed to be Paul's last letter, dating to the end of the 50s, which we can only mean that no teaching from Jesus on this point existed then for him to cite. As by then he surely would have known such a thing if it were a tradition that could have been known to Mark some thirty years later, right or twenty-five years later. But we see that Paul's teachings about taxes became formulated or i'm sorry reformulated into pithy sense in Jesus' life- a sense that for all we know was the free literary invention of mark, and there are other examples that we can look at, for instance, in one Corinthians five. Paul extensively argues that the Corinthians should condemn and expel the fornicators in their myths and abandon them to the devil. Yet somehow Paul knows nothing of Jesus having said that those who even look at women with lust would be better off cutting out their eyeballs than burning in hell and that actual fornicators would be better off chopping off their hands as seen in Matthew five twenty-seven through 30. Indeed, even their testicles as seen in Matthew 19 and 12. So it would seem that more likely again that Paul's more prosaic idea of abandoning fornicators to the devil became Jesus' more colorful teachings about abandoning fornicators to hell and not the other way around. But the most surprising example of this pertains to the golden rule, considered to be characteristic of Jesus in fact paul teaches the concept of turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor many times in romans 12:14 through 21 and he tells us to the galatians in 5:14 through 15 and Thessalonians in 5:15 as well as romans 13:9 through 10 now indeed in the last passage he even declares outright to love your neighbor as much as yourself Yet not once does Paul show any knowledge that Jesus had said this or said anything at all that's relevant to this particular topic. He never quotes Jesus or reminds him that Jesus commanded these things on appeal or any of Jesus's sayings or parables. I'm sorry, parables on this subject. But instead, Paul only knows the source is what he found in Scripture. Of course, is in Leviticus 19:18, the actual origin of the Golden Rule. So everything else is just Paul's own imagination, his own thoughts and his own wishes and his own desires on what he believed that his congregations should be like and what rules they should follow are things that he found already in scripture that he put onto the lips of Jesus that later redactors and to the four canonized gospels would put again with more elaborate themes and color onto Jesus' lips. So all of Jesus' most famous teachings about turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor appears to not have existed yet. Which means we can't establish it ever came from a historical Jesus at this point. It was just a likely invented by the gospel authors on their own accord. Most likely to capture what were in fact the teachings of Paul or the other apostles by cleverly constructing sayings and scenes and attributing them to Jesus. Now, confirming this is the fact that nothing the Gospels claim Jesus said on this subject was known not even to one Clement either. In fact, when Clement does quote Jesus on the matter of how to treat others, he actually quotes completely different sayings that conveys a concept of, perhaps, mutuality with a sequence of lines that are absolutely unknown to the Gospels, all communicating the same principle in different forms. That is, as you treat others, you shall be treated. That's in 1 Clement 13, 2-3, a notably different sentiment than Jesus' made to voice in the Gospels. The closest analog we get is in Matthew 7, 2, which is still quite different from the golden roll. So this is more pragmatic. This is more pragmatic version of the ethic that Clement learned may have been extracted from a lost scripture, which we, or a lot of scholars, like to refer to as Q. And that's um, just generally and globally known. that there's a lost scripture, a lost gospel referred to as Q, and thus could have been discovered after Paul wrote to the Romans. But even if it was known to Paul, he had no need of it, since he already cites one of the scriptures as his own authority, one that his Jewish learning audiences in Rome would be more certain to accept, such as being familiar with the citation in Leviticus, Right. But by contrast, the scripture that may have contained the passage that Clement cites on the Lord's sayings on mutuality could have been sufficiently unorthodox that it would not be recognized as scripture by all Christians, perhaps especially Jewish Christians, and then would have been less persuasive to a more conservative audience than just a citation from Leviticus. But in any event, citing scripture is simply citing scripture. It is what it is. And once you've done that, you simply don't need to do it again. So even if Paul knew Clement's sayings, he must have known it as a passage from scripture, which we know he did. Something not in the canon now, but he knew his scripture in and out. And he clearly can't have known it as something declared by Jesus directly, as surely then he would have referenced it, right? As the most powerful argument that a Christian could possibly offer to persuade his peers the very words of their Lord, Jesus Christ. And again, the sayings attributed to Jesus in one Clement consist only of a series of simple commandments, each of which, we noted before, gets expanded into more elaborate teachings, more elaborate and colorful parables, and more colorful stories in the Gospels. That is how sayings and stories were invented for Jesus. A brief revelatory or scriptural passage gets interpreted into the gospel by an author formulating a story depicting Jesus saying more about it with more elaborations, more color, more flair, and to fit a theme that's taking place in the common um, political landscape. Another piece of evidence for this conclusion is the fact that the most typical mode of teachings that are attributed to our Jesus in the Gospels, or at least the synoptics, is the use of the parable. Yet parables seem completely unknown to Paul that writes three decades before and closer to the time of Jesus. He never once cites one or even uses one, never refers to one. Or James or John or Peter never references to Paul that, hey... Jesus teaches in parables. We get nothing like that. There evidently were no parables from Jesus in those days or that time at all to use or to record or to make mention of. Those must have been later fabrications down the road, like I said, three, four decades later, and most likely by the authors of the Gospels themselves. And for surely, the parables of Jesus would have been the main vehicle for teaching morals and doctrine in the church Even for Paul, who after 14 years could not possibly still be ignorant of them or unaware. They certainly would have been the best known and most persuasive arguments and the examples to teach with. Coming from the very Son of God himself. And being we're supposed to be beautiful and and moving, these parables. How could Paul so thoroughly neglect them? Most likely because they haven't been invented yet. Now, what we do know is the school that the four canonical gospels attended, very much into Greek writing, It, and we're going to learn this a little bit later on, it teaches them and it taught them to write in this particular writing style, just like the way that Homer wrote just like the way that Virgil wrote, writing in parables and these very circular types of patterns where stories are intermixing with each other and where one story will be interjected with multiple other meanings. And this is how these guys went to school and this is what they learned. It's very, very interesting. But Paul doesn't utilize it at all. However, almost everything that Jesus says in the Gospels is absolutely true. Non-historical, but that's not the same as Jesus Himself being non-historical, right? Because we've we've seen this, such as you know, in the Tale of Two Cities regarding the French Revolution. You know, it's a true story, but none of the people were real in it. It's it's the same kind of difference of trying to convey a message through characters. But if we are to honestly test on historicity, we must concede it's entirely possibility that Jesus was historical but didn't teach very much at all or much of any subsequent use. This means that the silence in Paul regarding the historical sayings of Jesus is what? Intermediate. But it's still really hard to explain how Jesus could have been so rapidly worshipped as a demigod, as if hardly ever taught anything or even anything worth repeating. So Transitioning from sayings to deeds, we have the middle case of what Paul says about the origin of the Eucharist ritual, which could be one of the lone exceptions to the last point that we just made. This is both an event that supposedly happened and sayings that Paul learned from the Lord about it. This was an absolute communication between the Lord and Paul in Revelation about adapting to the Eucharist. And it appears to not have been derived from witness or oral tradition, but from Paul's hallucinated conversations with Jesus, or so Paul claimed anyway. Um, This is what he told everybody. So Paul says, using again the same language of receiving and communicating Revelation, he employs in the book to the Galatians, or the letter to the Galatians. So this is in 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, 23-26, and I begin the quote. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was delivered up took bread, and having given thanks, he broke it and said, This bread is my body, which is for your sake. Do this in, re- in remembrance. Likewise, also the cup, after eating, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. End quote. Now there are strong verbal similarities with this scene in the Gospels, whose accounts all derive from—you know—Mark wrote first around seventy-seven to seventy-nine but in chapter 14 verses 22 to 25 this is some 25 years after Paul's Paul's death or at least when he's done writing indicating dependence on this particular passage in Paul the author for mark drew from this passage from Paul because remember mark with mark and matthew and luke and john they were all very much and i'm sure that um uh, Luke and John may have not known Mark at all because he wrote so much later and he may have already been dead by now but they Paul they excuse me but they pull from his letters but note how Mark alters Paul's account where Paul only knows of Jesus taking these objects and requesting those hearing to repeat the ritual to establish communion with him Mark turns it into an entire narrative scene with guests present as they were eating jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and so on he turned it to a full-on dinner scene to where it was just a, a hallucinatory um you know scene that paul was experiencing one day when he's out hitting the pipe as seen in mark 14 22. so gone also is the instruction to do this in remembrance of me and instead inserted our repeated references to people The disciples are now invented three decades later. And they're present, and they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're hanging out with Jesus now. This is a very good example of how we know that the disciples were invented. It's one of them anyway. If we see this for what it is, being Mark turning Paul's ritual instruction from a hallucination from Jesus into a story about Jesus as an event we can no longer presume that Paul is talking about an actual historical event. The more so, as he says, he was told this directly by Jesus, not by anyone who was present at the meal. It probably resembles the experience reported of Peter, as seen in Acts 10, 9-17, where another dinner scene is also hallucinated, with the words also being spoken by the celestial being who's conducting it. For example, in Paul's case, he refers to no one being present, just Jesus, in his hallucination. And Paul tells us that he had been preaching the gospel and founding the churches for these three whole years before he ever spoke to anyone about it. Who could have even been there? He says this in Galatians 1, 15-20. And he couldn't have possibly have had been doing anything without teaching the Eucharist ritual. He therefore must have received this revelation then, or claimed to have, as seen in Galatians 1, 11-12. Now, this revelation, with quotations from my head, of course, may have been based on things he learned from the Christians that he had been persecuting outside of Judea. Paul never persecuted any Christians in Judea, as he was completely unknown there, except by reputation alone, until 14 years after his conversion which he tells us in a letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, verses 21 all the way through two-one. But it's clear he could only claim to have known it by revelation to be counted as an actual apostle. Otherwise, he would just have properly cited this as common tradition that was handed down to him by the, by the first apostles, Peter and James, of course, as the Corinthians would have expected him to as that would have then been the only way for him to affirm and verify his, what, his authenticity. And yet, instead, he validates it by declaring it as a direct communication from Jesus, not by any handed down information or being handed down from the first apostles. So, evidently, that's how all the other apostles were also claiming to know it. Thus, Paul had to do it as well, lest to be exposed as not really an apostle which means all the other apostles could have been claiming to have been revelators as well. Although, alternatives are possible, but nothing here confirms them. In the narrative that Paul relates, Jesus appears to be speaking to future Christian generations, future Christian communities, for his body, for your sake, meaning all Christians Not just those who would be present if he were just speaking at a dinner party to to his dinner guests. And you, in the plural form, are to always repeat the ritual that he describes. Which obviously cannot mean just those that are present at the dinner, but for all future believers. This is what Paul's doing here. Paul also says nothing about this, even being a dinner. That was contrived later on, 25 to 35 years later. Jesus simply takes up bread... And a cup and gives instructions on how to use them to achieve communion. Which obviously is straight up cultish because it's establishing communion and establishing this brotherhood that requires baptism. (laughs) That's very, very similar, right? That an actual historical Jesus would have done any of this is so doubtful. That would entail he fully planned his death and fully understood it to be a supernatural atoning sacrifice and fully expected a lasting church tradition to be established even afterwards, based on a strange end-of-days theme. That is right there a big stack of impossibilities, if you ask me. Now, likewise, also note that Paul says we do this to proclaim his death until he comes, with quotation marks over my head, as opposed to until he returns, right? Right? That's very different. This is evincing no idea Jesus had already come to convey this instruction in a room in Jerusalem, for example, with 12 disciples. And we do it not to proclaim that Jesus is coming, but to proclaim that he had died. One does not have to perform a ritual to proclaim someone had died whom everyone knows had already died. But if his death was only mystically known, one would have to proclaim their belief in that death in order to partake of its riches, the atonement of its procured and its resurrection that it promised. For example, Paul's Eucharist does not look like a historicist account of a Last Supper, but more of a celestial vision of an instruction from their Lord, direction to future generations, and not to present dinner guests sitting around a table as we've seen depicted in Paintings, you know, from the 13th century. Especially that of disciples as Paul knew nothing of. So this leaves us to ask the question, what Paul means by saying, Jesus told him he had said these things, in the night which he was delivered up. Right? And I'm saying that with quotations over my head. In the night in which he was delivered up. Translations often render this as, in the night in which he was betrayed. As how later um, scribes had changed it. But in fact, the word is in Greek, paradidami, paradidami, which simply means get this, handed over or to deliver. That's very different from betrayed. <laughs> which is too ambiguous to assume that what underlies it is implausible, the whole Judas narrative found in the Gospels. As we shall see shortly, Judas was completely an anti-Semitic character that was made up. And there is a lot of clues in that that's hidden within his name, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's most likely, it most likely means that when he was handed over to be killed, when or when he was offered up, as Paul says elsewhere, he was delivered up, seen in romans four twenty four to twenty five God delivered him up in romans eight thirty two He delivered himself up in galatians two twenty all the same word now in mythicism, when we're talking about Osiris or Romulus or any of these other cults that we're talking about during this same particular time, even before, this would be when he was handed over to Satan. In the same way, Job had been using the same word in the Septuagint text of Job 2.6. And just as Paul says of a Christian congregant delivered up to Satan, as he writes in 1 Corinthians 5.5, again using that same word. And of all Christians who are delivered up to death in 2 Corinthians 4.11, Paul never mentions anything about Jesus having been betrayed. It's completely unknown to him. And if 1 Corinthians 15.5 has not been altered, Paul then has no knowledge of a disciple betraying Jesus ever. It's made up three decades later. Instead, he always uses this word to refer to Jesus Excuse me, being offered up by God or offering himself up for us. The notion was likely derives from Isaiah 53.12, in which in the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew to Greek translation, uses exactly the same word of the very servant who is offered up to atone for everyone's sins, which we'll learn later in Jewish thinking, this was actually referring to Israel that will offer itself up, not Jesus. On that reading, Jesus in effect cast a ritual spell that would permit those who repeated it to share in what would happen to him, passing through death and then to resurrection. He then revealed to an elect few, the apostles and eventually Paul among them, so they and those they taught could enact the spells themselves and thereby commune with him and share in the defeat of his death. And as we saw, such communion rituals, having essentially the same purpose, were already a staple feature in mystery cults of the time. This was simply the Christian version of it, adapted with some creative Jewish ideology. That the original casting of this spell happened during a specific past night confirms to me mythicism on which the celestial sacrifice was believed to have taken place at a specific recent time. With all attending events along with it, ritual, abuse, and then burial. Now in this piece of scripture, the specific idea that it occurred at night was probably derived from Old Testament scripture. Like many other facts that Paul and the authors of 1 Clement and even Hebrews discovered about Jesus, there could be some connections with the quote in Psalms 119, where God's servant will remember God and his laws in the night. As seen in 119 verses 49 through 56, as the wicked abuse him. And the cord of the wicked have been wrapped around him at midnight, as seen in 119.61-62, as they have overthrown him wrongfully in 119.78 in their pride, but for which they will put to shame, along with other telling concepts befitting the Christian picture on the night that Jesus was delivered up as seen in 119, 82, 84, and even 87 to 89, etc., including a reference to his being buried by a lawless enemy, as seen in 119, verse 85, and then his praying to God to save him, as seen in 119, verse 145. A possible inspiration for Hebrews, chapter five, verses eight to nine. Now, indeed, much of this psalm sounds like the prayer of God's servants about to be executed unjustly by men taking as a hidden message about Jesus, perhaps. But more accurately, it was actually about David or Torah-observant Jews in general, is really what most um, theologians agree to. But would this teach a Christian that all happened at night? The fact that Paul understood Jesus to be merging himself with both the Yom Kippur goat as well as the Passover lamb, leads us to more readily see this Eucharist ritual as the new Passover, symbolically reenacting what the original Passover had done the salvation of those who properly ritualized the use of the flesh and the blood at the Lord's instructions. Exodus 12, verses 7 through 14 share so many features with Paul's Eucharist account the element of it occurring in the night, a ritual of remembrance, securing the performer's salvation, the role of the blood and the flesh, including the staining of a cross with blood, an ancient door, lintel forming a double cross, the breaking of bread, and the death of the firstborn. Only Jesus reserves this element. Instead of the ritual having, saving its performers from the death for their firstborn, the death of God's firstborn saves its performers from their own death. It's a little role reversal. Jesus is thus imagined here as creating a new Passover ritual that replaces the old one, which accomplishes for Christians what the Passover ritual accomplished for Jews. So either Jesus really did that, which seems highly unlikely, or this was an outright lie, his disciples claiming he really did that, or it was learned by revelation. Inspired by creatively reading scriptures, which we know that they did, we cannot decide among these options from the evidence that is available to us in the Pauline letters. In fact, we must find it too easily explained as, or by mythicism. Revelation makes better sense of its oddities that's found in Paul, as well as its divergences found in Mark, its intrinsic historical implausibility. And it's way too unusual and sparsely detailed for minimal historicity, leaving us with no definite evidence it didn't derive from revelations alone or hallucinations. Now, we just covered the question of whether Jesus actually broke bread at a historical last summer and found the question unresolvable from what we can find in the Pauline letters. Right? We've looked at this. What about other things that Jesus did or had done? Does Paul mention anything else like that? No, not much. We already addressed the bare facts of Jesus having suffered and died and had been resurrected, which are all expected beliefs on mysticism. Now, why do we keep referring this or making the comparison to mythicism? Because in all mystical cults happening at the same time shared the same features that Christianity shared in its origins. As on that theory, these events all occurred in outer space, in the original Christian context, in what they believed. Jesus would have been buried in a grave or perhaps in a tomb, somewhere above the clouds just as Adam was, in a more perfect realm, not on handmade realms as on earth. He would likewise have been abused and crucified there as well, and by Satan and his sky demons. Not by the Sanhedrin, not by the elite Jews, not by the Romans, but by Satan and his sky demons, just as the other earliest discernible redaction told us as a, the Ascension of Isaiah. Of these, it's most obvious that the resurrection occurred only in secret, as seen in 1 Corinthians 153 3-8, the reason Jesus appeared only to believers, and evidently only in private and only on scattered, isolated occasions, right? The sole exception of Paul mentions is himself, having been an enemy of the church who saw Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, the only such person Paul seems to know, yet he says he saw Jesus in Revelation, as told through Galatians 1, and thereupon became a believer himself. There is therefore no public appearance of Jesus known to Paul whatsoever. However, only once does Paul clearly say Jesus ever appeared to more than one person at the same time in one corinthians fifteen six This is in a very important Christian go-to verse, but even then it was still post-mortem and only two believers, and in the unspecified manner, all of which indicates mass hallucination actual. Or perhaps even pretended. Paul never mentions Jesus having been seen by anyone before that ever, much less in person. Again, his only cited sources for the crucifixion and the burial are only found in Scripture. It's found in the Old Testament as we just picked apart Psalms, which was actually about Torah-observant Jews. Or perhaps King David. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3-4. through we therefore have no indication there was any more evidence for those events than for the resurrection. Now indeed, we should sooner conclude that there was decidedly less. On a plain reading, that's what Paul seems to be saying to us here. Now indeed, we can take a look at the cross of Jesus, as described to us in Galatians 6.14, 1 Corinthians 1.17, and even Philippians 3.18. But it sounds like a cosmically potent object, one that would be found in outer space, and not just some everyday pole or crossbeam that was manufactured by the Romans and used repeatedly for executing countless others besides Jesus. In fact, the one time Paul says anything about who killed Jesus apart from one passage, scholars agree, is a massive interpolation later on, 2nd, 3rd century, which we'll look at next, it looks more like he means the demons of the air the demons up in space, than an earthly human authority. This is what Paul writes. I begin quotation. We speak of a wisdom among the mature, a wisdom not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery that has been hidden, which God foreordained before the ages of our glory which none of the rulers of his age had known. For if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord or glory. But as it is written, things which I saw not and ear heard not and which entered not into the heart of man, those things God prepared for those who love him. For God revealed them to us the Spirit. And And he finds this in 1 Corinthians 2. Verses 6 through 10. So here we are told that all these things were hidden and then revealed, but only to a select few. No, no one saw or heard them transpire, right? That means God's plan, not necessarily that Jesus had died. But what's key here is that the hidden things that Paul is talking about are the fact that Christ's death rescued us from the wages of sin and therefore secured us eternal life in the future. In other words, that Jesus had thereby atoned for our sins, as he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Paul is saying that if the rulers of his age had known that that would be the effect of his death, they would have not had killed him at all. Now, this cannot mean the Jewish elite, the Sanhedrin, or the Romans, or any other human authority whatsoever. None of them would have been dissuaded by knowing such a fact. Indeed, they would have gladly have gone through with it in order to save all of mankind, right? Or not cared one bit if they didn't really believe it would have such an effect. There is only one order of beings who is invested in preventing such a result from happening, and that would be Satan and his demons those who revealed in maintaining death and corruption in the human world, the only beings uniformly set against God's plan. It is not plausible to suggest that Paul really meant the Jews wanted to prevent our salvation and deliberately thwart God's plan. No. Such an anti-Semitic notion is not found anywhere anywhere to be found in any of Paul's letters. This doesn't happen until we get the Gospels. Moreover, Paul does not say the Jews, but what he does tell us is the rulers of his age. That's very different as a collective whole. This cannot mean just Pontius Pilate and the Sanhedrin. This is everyone in power. They killed Jesus and did so only because they were kept from knowing their doing would, would save the human race. This entails a whole world order, whereby if any of the rulers of this age had known what ha- would happen, they would have told their peers and, and stopped the crucifixion right then and right there to to prevent its supernatural effect. This does not describe any human world order or make any sense whatsoever. This this describes the satanic world order, the realm of demons and the fallen angelic powers. Now, when Paul says the rulers of his age were the ones kept in the dark and who in result crucified Jesus, he even goes as far to use the Greek word archon in its term of then. And that's common use for supernatural sense, or the demonic powers. Paul never uses this word for any type of earthly authorities whatsoever. And here he certainly cannot be using it in any type of human sense, as the motives he is inputting to these archons make no sense. Rather, this exactly describes what we saw earlier redaction of the ascension of Isaiah with the multiple realms of the murder of Jesus taking place in outer space. Satan and his demons in Paul's mind, as well as the author for the Ascension of Isaiah, killed Jesus only because his identity was kept hidden from them. So they wouldn't know what his death would accomplish. And they would have known had Jesus not disguised himself because he self-sacrifice of the high priest of God's celestial temple, would have had effects as obvious to them as to the authors of Hebrews. The same could not be said for Pontius Pilate or the Jewish Sanhedrin, who did not possess the requisite supernatural knowledge. And even if if we imagine that they did, if God had revealed it to them, for example, why would they then try to stop the crucifixion? Obviously, they would see it as a value and recognize it as what the supreme God of all people wanted, to sacrifice his son, right? And if they didn't, they would have no reason not to kill Jesus anyway. So it is usually assumed that what Paul really means here is that had the authorities known Jesus was the Messiah, they would have bowed down to him rather than kill him, right? Although that would not make sense to the Romans, who would try all the more to kill a Jewish Messiah, right? So as you're, as you're understanding this, think about the anti-Semitism that we are told in the Gospels. Not what's coming from Paul when you start putting these dots together. It also ignores the fact that in the earliest Christian understanding, the Messiah's death is precisely how God affects our salvation, this is clear not only here in Hebrews verses 8 through 9 but also through the letters of Paul as he has most elaborately explains in Romans 5 through 6 that is again the hidden mystery Paul is talking about the very stumbling block that trips up the Jews and seems foolish to the Gentiles as seen in 1 Corinthians 123 which means if the Jews had known this they would have not have bowed down to Jesus rather than killed him. Right? They would have done both. Only if they wanted to prevent the salvation of mankind would they have just refrained from carrying out the sacrifice that God commanded. And that kind of cosmic vindictiveness is not the sort of thing Paul ever attributes to the Jews. Ever. Or even to the Romans for that matter. But to the contrary and Paul's view of earthly authorities is that he is that it always does God's will as seen in Romans 13 not that it is genocidically warning against it it also makes no sense for God to hide his plan of salvation from his own chosen people why would he do that whereas it does make sense that he had helped hide it from satan and his minions by communicating to his chosen people but only in code. It therefore makes no sense to conclude that it is the archons of the sky that Paul is saying God wanted to thwart by keeping all of this hidden. So they should kill Jesus, not knowing it would secure their own destruction. Right? So for Paul says that the archons are being abolished. This does not possibly refer to the Jewish or the Roman elite who were still fully in power and could still be saved as anyone by joining Christ later on. It is most plausibly means that those sharing in the sacrifice of Jesus now had the power over the demons to exercise them and escape their clutches, thereby escaping the power of death. Because it is by his death that Jesus had triumphant over those dark celestial powers. Just as in the Colossians 2.15 would later say. The early Christian scholar Origen even agreed. He could only understand Paul here by saying that unseen powers of darkness were being abolished. Not any earthly authorities. And that these demonic powers were the ones plotted against and crucified Jesus. Now, obviously, someone who's still mired in their dogma and tradition of Christianity, they might not be ready to see this, nor be able to understand it, the logic behind it. They can still say, as perhaps or what our origin meant, that this is all just a veiled way of referring to Pilate and the Sanhedrin or some such thing like that, that Paul is somehow imagining a world conspiracy of the Roman Empire and the Jews to thwart God's plan. And thus all the oddities just noted can be explained away with the battery of an ad hoc excuse, obviously. So a historicist reading of this passage can be shoehorned in, right? Right? Squeezed in very, very easily. I guess with a little bit of effort, right? But what cannot reasonably be denied is how well the mythicistic reading of this passage fits without any shoehorning at all. It absolutely makes sense in mythicism. It then matches exactly what is said in the early redaction of the Ascension of Isaiah, in early Christian imagination. And nothing at all is off about it. You don't need to do any kind of um, mental gymnastics to make it work. It just fits and it makes sense. Nothing needs to be explained away and you don't need to have any ifs, ands, or buts to make make the equation work. The probability that Paul would write this passage if mythicism were true is therefore surely higher than the probability that would Be if he wrote this as if historicity were true. And on the latter, we would sooner expect something far less vague and far less bizarrely damning of the Romans and the Jews as the enemies of God. And indeed, all of humankind, right? And something far more plausible about how they would have acted had they had known the truth. Whereas on the former theory, this is pretty much exactly what we'd expect Paul to write. On one reading, we need excuses for everything. And on the other, in terms of of mysticism, we need none. No excuses. Nothing at all. It just is what it is. And it's what early Christians believed. It's what early Christians thought. Now, I know that there are some diehard nutjobs out there that will then try to appeal to another passage as their prize counterexample for their argument, where indeed Paul does appear to say that the Jews specifically, without any mention of the Romans, are the ones who killed their baby Jesus and got their just dessert for it. And we see this in a second or perhaps third century interpolation in 1 Thessalonians 2 Verses 15-16. through Open up your Bible and take a look. But this has long been recognized as an interpolation, as a forgery. It was not anything Paul ever wrote or would write. This is not something that mythicists cooked up ad hoc. Many well-respected historicists and scholars agree. And their case has been made in major peer-reviewed journals. I find their case to be very decisive. Contrary to what this passage states, Paul never ever once blamed the Jews for anything, let alone the death of Jesus. Anywhere within any of his writings, any of his context, does not make sense. Paul never talks about God's wrath as having come, but is coming only at the future judgment, as in seen in Romans 2, um, verses 5, as well as chapter 3, verses five through six, as well as chapter four, verse 15. And Paul teaches the Jews will actually be saved and not destroyed. This is an example in Romans chapter 11, verses five through 28. So what's interesting, in terms of forgery and interpolations in what the overall theme of how Jesus was killed are very different from what we see in Hebrews and the Pauline letters, just the epistles of James and Peter, and then what we get again 25 years, 30 years, even 40 years later talking about John and the Gospels that were all canonized in the Roman Catholic Church, right? So it becomes very interesting because when we look at the epistles and we look at everything that Paul says, again, one, Paul in ninety nine percent of what he talks about only imagines Jesus taking place in the outer space in the realms of heaven, very consistent with early Jewish Christian thinking in terms of the ascension of Isaiah, where the battles are happening you know in the lower realms of heaven and then there's that one little piece or one little percentile that makes a rough Little example that, hey, that could be interpreted as being taken place on earth. Or maybe not. We can't decide. But that 1% versus 99%, I have to go with the heavier scale of what he is talking about. Then on the other thing, with blaming the Jews. He never blames Jews anywhere. and only says that salvation is a come to us at the end, including the Jews. Right? But then as we already talked about with the wars of the Jews in that four-episode piece that I did from the works of Josephus, we see that later 1st century, 2nd century, 3rd century Christians deliberately tried to take the blame off the Romans and place them onto the Jews. I find that very, very interesting. And then we also know that a lot of Paul's work Remember we talked about that it was pat stitched, where most of his works were done in just loose leaf pamphlet form that were rewritten and redacted and redacted. And those are what the churches that the church congregations were reading from. And this is all obviously prior to the gospels being coming out and being an addendum to those particular works. But it's not until then do we start seeing this anti-Semitism come in, and hey, take it easy on Rome, pay your taxes, um you know, be good to your fellow man, and you know we talked about all that already, but it's really interesting to see how the tables changed, and I think most importantly, Paul was almost certainly dead by the time the wrath had come upon the Jews of Judea. to the utmost, the statement can only refer to the destruction of the Jewish nation the Jewish nation temple in 70 CE by Titus Flavius and his military campaign against the rebelling Jews. So obviously Paul could not have said any such thing. This passage was absolutely cooked up by early anti-Semitic Christians of the late 1st century. And then attempts to defend this passage's authenticity are wholly untenable. They require us to believe too many improbable things. So the present text reads, with emphasis added, and I begin, quote, For you, brethren, became imitators of the Church of God, which are in Judea, in Jesus Christ. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews." Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and pleased not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, to fill up their sins for evermore. But the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. End quote. And there's your quote from 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 through 15, the interpolation or the late first century forgery. So here is what makes this obviously and contrived. Because Paul is actually writing to converts, if you take a look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, being persecuted by pagans, not by Jews. This is what he means in verse or in chapter 2, verse 14. So why would he suddenly break into a tirade against Jews here? Why would he go into the Jews when he's talking about about pagans that don't want to convert? This makes no sense. And no sense in the context and it violates the entire thread of his argument that the, that the Thessalonians are to be condemned for having withstood a pagan persecution. Just as the Judean churches had withstood a Jewish one, or even a Judean one. Everything after, as they did from the Jews, is therefore a logical context. The book needs to be tossed out as evidence. Even reading Jews as Judeans, it does not work here as well. Not only because the difference is not relevant here, for example, when Paul elsewhere says the Jews will be saved as a generic category and cannot be damned. He necessarily must mean Judeans as well. But also because many Christian churches were comprised of Judeans. As we can see that he wrote in Galatians chapter 1 verse 22 for decades. And chapter one eighteen as well as 2 1. And that means that they were not driven out. Indeed, Paul was able to come and go freely, freely. And Paul never elsewhere, anywhere else, mentions the Judean churches as having been destroyed or purged, not even in, not even in Romans, where it could hardly escape mention. Since the fact of it would be the very first question of this audience's mind that he would absolutely have to explain away. Also, Paul also makes no mention of Judeans preventing his preaching to the Gentiles. Never. Even when he was in Judea preaching to Gentiles. This is clear in Galatians 2, where it is Jewish Christians and them only. Where it is Jewish Christians and them only who were wagging their fingers at this there is no mention of Jews generally attacking him for it, or forbidding him, or driving him out for it. Indeed, not even the Jewish Christians did that, or of these being problems that he had to confront. To the contrary, his only obstacle here is the condemnation of a certain faction of Christians. But most damning here is the fact that these suspect odd verses Say, God's wrath has come upon the Jews to the uttermost. And literally the Greek word is eis telos, which is literally to the end with finality. This cannot be twisted into meaning the exact opposite of what it actually says. For one thing, it unmistakably refers to something that affected the Jews in Judea. For you became imitators of the church of God, which are in Judea. For you also suffered the same things of your own countrymen as they did for the Jews who killed Jesus and the prophets in Judea and drove us out of Judea, for example. So claiming that this refers to an earlier expulsion of the Jews in Rome, for example, is a complete non-starter. That was a purely temporary and isolated event. And thus not by any stretch of the imagination final as what we saw in, what, 73 or even 70 of the destruction of the temple that happened way, way after this, after Paul's death. And hardly anything that one would call the wrath of God, as if the worst God could display his wrath is forcing Jews living in pagan Rome to go back to the Holy Land, and only affected the Jews in Rome, not the Jews in Judea. So how could God's wrath have been visited on the Jews of Judea by punishing the Jews in Rome? The only thing a final judgment on the Jews in Judea could possibly have been the end of Judea itself as an entire province and the end of Jewish cult in the destruction of the temple in 70. And then the final end of the rebels in um, Mazda in 73. But this is widely recognized by Christians thereafter as God's final abandonment of the Jews. No other events make any sense. And Paul was dead by then, too. So even on that point alone, we can be certain that this is just another apologetic interpolation to spread their anti-Semitic word and their message. Now, I think because of you see this condemnation of Jews happening. I think we can clearly date this interpolation, this forgery on this particular letter from Paul is coinciding with probably Mark, Matthew. Um, probably that's 7980, perhaps even as late as 8590 into the works of John. Um, so pretty, pretty interesting that we could see how we can date this because how the message changes. This is only further confirmed by how unusual this passage is. Not is any of any of Paul's 20,000 words or so and dozens of discussions of the Jews, is there anything remotely like it? Paul blaming the Jews for the death of Jesus is simply unprecedented. It's highly unlikely. Paul also never talks about the Jews as if, it, as if he wasn't one of them. See this in Galatians 2:15 and 1 Corinthians 9:20, Romans 9:1 through 5, as well as 11:1, and even his letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. Paul even himself says that he was one of the Jews persecuting the church. He says this in as well as in um, 1, 13 and 14:23 that he would here be saying God had damned which makes no sense. Paul likewise acknowledged Jews, even Jews in Judea, as members of his own church. So he wouldn't damn them as a group like that, as an entire people. And he never does. See Galatians 1, 22-24, and 1 Corinthians one twenty-four and 12, 13, as well as 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, and even Romans 9, 24, as well as 10, 12. Instead, Paul says things like, did God cast his people off? God forbid, for I am also a Jew of the seeds of Abraham, of the tribes of Benjamin, as seen in Romans 11.1. 1. And are they Hebrews? So am I, as seen in 2 Corinthians 11.22. So the fact that Paul would actually taught the Jews would be saved... And not damned is repeatedly clear to us, as told through Paul in his authentic letters. As an example, Romans in Romans eleven, twenty five to twenty eight, and likewise in Romans two and five, and in, in uh, chapter three, verses five through six, as well as chapter four fifteen, even one Thessalonians one ten. This again must necessarily include the Jews of Judea, and hence Judeans. Even Jews who persecuted Christians became Paul himself, just like Paul himself did. And he surely can't be damning himself here. Therefore, redemption was possible. Even for that. And Paul makes this clear, and other verses cited as well. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 15-16, is therefore simply not anything Paul would write. It can only be what later anti-Semitic Christians would insert so I think this is a good place to wind down this episode um, number 10 of season 2 And um, as we're evaluating, continue to go through and read the earliest Christian documents that we have, and that is the Pauline letters, and then that is also the epistles of James, Peter, and even that of John um, that we've been going through for the last couple of episodes. And so it's interesting to also see the message that these epistles, especially what we see in Hebrews, is writing about a cosmic Jesus. And then how later redactors, um, obviously first century church, second century church, felt the need that it was important to actually start working this cosmic Christ into human form, but not in the flesh as in the um, realms of heaven, but interacting with humans on earth and making those humans, interestingly enough, the Romans during Roman occupation. And then turning the tables on the Jews as well, um, taking blame off the Romans who were occupying and killing Jews, and turning it around and putting it on to the Jews who were rebelling, and, and rebelling against the, the Romans. It's very, very interesting. And it kind of ties together and paints a clear picture from what was happening with early Christianity and what Paul's congregations were learning about in the 50s and then what Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John's congregations were reading about, which were still pretty much Paul and Peter's um, and James' congregations, but how the information started to transpire and change. It's pretty interesting. And then that's where you can see where the Christian um, document meddling would start taking place, and, and that's where interpolations would start happening where documents would have to be reviewed again. We talked about that. Where there, I'm sure that it was underneath the Roman Empire where these documents had to come through. They were reread. They were um, adjusted to start to be consistent with what the four Gospels were going to entail. And as we're going to talk about in a few episodes to come here, is we're going to talk about these weren't the only guys writing. There was a lot of writing that was happening in Syria and even um, in Africa and a lot of these different places outside of Roman provinces that were absolutely continuing to write Gospels and write Acts. And it's very interesting the things that they write. And they're fairly all consistent with ghostly or cosmic Jesuses. It's very interesting from what they kept to what they learned and how quickly their doors were shut down and how even their books were destroyed because they weren't conveying the same message that the Roman Empire insisted to be told. Anyway, um, again, this is the end of this particular episode, and when we come back with 11, we're going to revisit this, and we're going to continue on a little bit further, um, because we are still examining this cosmic Jesus, and why we believe that this was the case before the Gospels. And then later on, we are actually going to go through and revisit um, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, but not to look for the anti-Semitism in it, and look for the, you know, what we've talked about before with the parallels found with um, Josephus and Titus's campaign, how it overlaps and how it mirrors with Jesus's ministry. Now we're, we're we're done with that. I think that's clear. But keep that locked into the back of your mind as we go through, and we're going to look at their writing styles. We can get down to where these guys went to school and even who their teachers were. It's pretty, pretty cool. Though no, I'm exaggerating a little bit there, but we know where these guys went to school and how Homeric they were, how, how they mirrored the Iliad and things of that nature. And the characterization, it's very cool. And we also have to understand where these guys found their source material for the things that Jesus would say and the things that Jesus would do, including his miracles. So I hope you guys enjoyed this particular episode. It's an hour and a half. I know they're getting a little bit long, but man, I hope you find it as interesting as I do. And again, a lot of this is taken from Richard Carrier's works on the history of Jesus, which is a fantastic read. Um, It's about 800 pages, so it's a lot to get through, um, but a lot of supportive evidence that's in there. And if you get a chance, please get onto Amazon, um, buy the book. Just even if you're a slow reader, just take it page by page. And a lot of great examples that are in there. Um, we're just painting, you know, just touching the surface of it from here. And I think you truly get a lot out of it. So guys, again, I appreciate you listening. And I appreciate you sharing with others. And everybody, if nothing else, be great humans and take care of each other. All right, peace out.